Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. share a couple images with you. This is Queen Elizabeth II, and um, it's from about the same era, same, about, about the same time, 1959, and um, I know some of us are fans of the crown, so we've got some like royalty fans here. So, so um, here's Queen Elizabeth II, uh, here's a photo of her on the left, here's a painting of her on, here on the right, and uh, there's a lot of similarities, right? Same, uh, same crown, same pose, basically, same, like, even almost the same dress, same, like, sash going over her shoulder. I'd be interested to hear, though, maybe just by a show of hands, if one of these had to go up in your home, like, maybe above your fireplace, how many of you would pick the photo? How many of you would pick the painting? Interesting. Uh, almost everybody, I think. Uh, here's another photo of the Queen. And on the right, here's another painting of the Queen. This one a little more recent. You know, if you want to know what the Queen looks like, this accurately presents her. Here on the right, that's exactly what she looked like when this photo was taken. And about the same time, an artist painted this painting of her on the left. So you've got this painting on the left, you've got this photo on the right. I wonder, again, if, you had to, if one of these had to end up in your living room, Above your fireplace, how many of you would put up the photo of the queen that's on the right? Okay, so a few. How many of you would put up the painting on the left? Interesting, most of us would. You know, they're, they're both accurate in a sense. Like, both of them show what the queen looks like. And yet, most of us chose the, the painting. I, I think that, I think that that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. And isn't it true that, like, a painting does something that a photo can't do? You know, like... A, a photographer probably took, you know, 10 or 20 shots of the queen and, you know, maybe in some of them her eyes were closed and maybe her eyebrows were a little wonky, so they, but they chose this one. This is the one that they, they preserved, but an artist has to, um, you know, plan out the canvas and has to, like, work out the composition and the strokes and the colors and the, the painter develops this, like, relationship with the subject matter and, and lingers and plans it out and, and it's not like photography doesn't take work. I, I think both photos and paintings, both of them tell the truth. But they communicate it very differently. And, and whereas a photo seems to work on your, your intellect, a painting works on our imagination. And that's really helpful. That's really important for us because today we're going to begin this study of a book called Habakkuk by this you know, Old Testament artist prophet. And, and I, I don't even know if any of you guys have read this book in the last little while. How many, of you, how many of you have read the book of Habakkuk in the last, like, year? 
So, okay, so a few of us have. How many of you have read it in the last, say, six months? Okay, okay, so a couple. It's, um, it's a unique little book. It's three chapters long. You could actually read Habakkuk start to finish in about five minutes. It's 55 verses, just three chapters. Just by way of outline, Habakkuk has, a, it begins with a prayer, then God's response in chapter one. And then in chapter two, there's another prayer from Habakkuk. And then there's another response from God. And then in chapter three, there's a third prayer from Habakkuk. And then there's this like confession of faith, this declaration of faith. And in Habakkuk, there's, there's poetry and there's song and there's prophecy and it's art and it's truth. And I think it's really important at the start to, that we, we want to get down that in Habakkuk, the truth works more like a painting than like a photo. All right. In Habakkuk, the, the truth works more like a painting than a photo. Habakkuk is trying to work on our imagination. And, and, and I think that's actually what we need. That's a really important thing, I think, because it turns out that's actually how God grows us as followers of Jesus. Uh, somebody who's been really helpful for me is, a, is a, a Canadian theologian named Jamie Smith. And he writes about the connection between Christians' discipleship, Christians' growth in their faith, and the imagination. And he wrote this book on it called Imagining the Kingdom. And I really like what he says in it. He says, We've too often pursued flawed models of discipleship and Christian formation that have focused on convincing the intellect rather than recruiting the imagination. He says, I've abandoned all hope that we can think our way out of the mess that we've made of the world. The pathology that besets us in this cultural moment is a failure of imagination. And arguments are no therapy for a failed, shriveled imagination. It will be the arts that resuscitate the imagination. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, if we want to grow in our faith, a follower of Jesus needs to have their imagination engaged. It's not so much about the intellect. It's about getting our imaginations uh, captured. And uh, a minute ago, we heard Habakkuk talk about this, this, the faith that he has in God. It's like he's got this burden that he wants to share with us. And he says, you know, though the fig tree does not bud and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. This is chapter 3, verse 18. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's beautiful. He, he ends the book of, of Habakkuk on this great, beautiful, hopeful note. That's really cool. That's a good kind of, that's a bit of a spoiler of, about where we're, we're going. But I think that's, it's really important to understand the book doesn't begin that way. Like, not even close. In fact, Habakkuk begins by crying out, how long? How long must I call for help and you do not listen? This is what he's saying to God. This is how he's praying. How long must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you, God, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing. Conflict escalates. And this is why the law, this is why, God, your law is ineffective and justice never emerges. The wicked restrict the righteous, therefore 
justice comes out perverted. So Habakkuk's starting point is like, God, how long? How can you allow this? What are you waiting for? Like, God, are you listening to to what's going on here? God, are you paying attention? How long do I have to call out like this? What do I have to do to make you see what I'm going through down here? How How can all of this, all this evil, how can this be part of your plan? He's got some big feelings And he's got some honest questions that he's bringing uh, before God. And and as we read these, it's going to hit us like right in the imagination, just like good art should. All right. Habakkuk is brutal, reverent, painful, earthy, God-breathed honesty. God-breathed, inspired honesty. And that's why I'm calling these these messages honest to God. And we're going to be in here from now till uh, we start Advent. And, and my goal is today is just to sort of orient us to what to expect in the book of Habakkuk, okay? Just as a bit of a side note, I'm really working hard to say Habakkuk and not Habakkuk. It's been an ongoing joke among uh, some of the, like the leadership team. They've been making fun of me because I used to say Habakkuk. And I'm going to do my best to say Habakkuk. If I switch to the other, I hope that that's not going to be too much of a distraction. But it is, I'm, I'm, I am trying to say Habakkuk. But again, the goal today, just to sort of orient us to what, to what to expect, I think it's going to be helpful if we can get into the story of Habakkuk a little bit and figure out the, the context of the book. I think it's going to be helpful if we can understand some of the burdens behind Habakkuk. What, is, what are the themes? What are the, what's the content that we should expect uh, as, we, as we study this book? And then what, where I want to end is I just I want us to stare at some art for a minute. Okay? So let's begin with a bit of context. Uh, so we can understand the story. So if you don't know, if you don't realize, it's okay. Habakkuk is part of the Old Testament. That's everything that happened before Jesus. And in fact, this, this part of the Old Testament, this happens a long, 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 long time after the patriarchs, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, okay? More than a thousand years after those guys. A long, long time after the Exodus with Moses. Long, long time after the judges with, with Joshua and, and Gideon and, and Samson and those guys. The 12 tribes of Israel have been in the promised land for generations. And under the leadership of King David, Israel was like amazing. They had, these were like the golden days of, uh, of Israel's history. Uh, like David really put Israel on the map. They were like, um, they're, they're prospering, they're growing, they're winning battles under the leadership of David. Okay? By and large, he was, he, was a, he was a good king for Israel. They look at that time as the golden age. And his son, Solomon, came along after, and he, he sort of succeeded David, and he took things to the next level, where, where Israel grew and expanded and established treaties with other nations. And, and under Solomon, Israel was, was in this time of, of, of culture and art and, and music. And again, people you know, sort of look back on those as the glory days of Israel. The 12 tribes are are one, they're united. But after King Solomon, the kingdom is divided between the the two sort of, the the two sort of main sections are the north, the 10 tribes of the north, which are generally go under the heading of Israel. And then the two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, and that just kind of goes by, by Judah. So there's this division, there's this split, there's this divorce in the, the people of God. And when, the, when that divorce happens, it seems like the North really loses their way pretty quickly. 
And something really important happens in the year 722 BC, 722 years before Jesus. The north, these, these people up here, they are captured, they're conquered by the Assyrians and they're swept away into, you know, into who knows where. And a lot of people think that they never, that, that exile, that, that scattering never really ended. That's what happened to the north. And, and then for a few generations, they, um, you know, they enjoy, like things go pretty well for the south for a little while. But it, you would think that maybe they learn a lesson from the example of the north. And they don't. And uh, a few generations after the north is conquered, in 586 BC, Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to be conquered by Babylon. Okay, so this is part of the Old Testament story. Babylon's going to come in. They're going to pull down the wall around Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the, the, the temple. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Tons and tons of Jews will be killed. And a whole bunch of them are going to be taken into exile in Babylon. And Habakkuk is alive at about this time. And he writes his letter, he writes Habakkuk, just before that happens. It might be that Habakkuk is one of the few people alive at the time who, who sees this coming. And that's a heavy burden for him. It's, it's a heavy burden for him to look at all of the sin and the corruption and the, the, the idolatry of Judah and to know God is, it's, it's a, in a very short time, God is going to do something to, to deal with this. That's a heavy burden for, for Habakkuk. In fact, the way that he introduces himself in this book, in chapter 1, verse 1, the very first thing that Habakkuk says uh, is, is that this is his pronouncement. Other versions say these are the oracles of Habakkuk, his prophecy, his message. Some versions really get it right, and they say this is the burden of Habakkuk. In fact, a really good translation of, of that is that this is the burden of Habakkuk the prophet. So a really good way for us to understand what Habakkuk is doing in this book is he, he's unloading a burden. And this, this book that he writes, it, it, he's presenting the truth, and that truth behaves more like a more like a painting than like a photo, all right? Because this prophet, he's, he's, an, he's an artist. He's got a burden that he wants to share. So that's a bit of the context behind Habakkuk. And I think what I'd like to do is take a minute and, and share some of the content, some of the things we should be prepared to hear as we, uh, as we get into this little book. I think that uh, it, a good way to understand it is to try and, try and hear the different burdens that Habakkuk carries. One of those burdens is, is his burden for God's ways. He really is struggling to make sense of God. In fact, this is what gets the, most of the airtime in Habakkuk. Because he looks at what's going on in Judah. He can see what's going on among his people. And he knows it's not right. And he pleads with God to stop it. He's like... God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Why do you allow this to happen? Aren't you listening to our prayer? Aren't you paying any attention? How could this stuff be part of your plan? Now, in theology, we call this theodicy. How many of you have heard the word theodicy before? The idea behind theodicy is, it's the question, how can a good God, how can a good and holy God allow evil? And that's, a, that's going to be an ongoing theme in the book of Habakkuk. And if that wasn't enough, another problem that comes up that's really confusing for, for Habakkuk is God is going to send judgment on Judah. And he's going to do that by raising up this, this 
people, this, this group called the Chaldeans, which are like a subgroup of the Babylonians, okay? So God's going to send the Chaldeans against uh, Judah. Okay, you with me so far? Now here's what's going to happen after that. After God sends the Chaldeans against Judah, he's going to be so mad about the, what the Chaldeans have done to Judah that he's now going to punish the Chaldeans. You with me? And, and Habakkuk is going to see that. He's going to go like, how, how does that work? And so, again, a major burden for Habakkuk here is that he's disturbed and he's troubled over God's ways. Another one of the burdens that Habakkuk is bearing is, he, is, is the burden of what it's like to be God's prophet. He, he kind of lets us in on this in, in a, a few little spots. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Why do you force me to look at injustice? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Like, it's too much. It's too hard for me to carry this around. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'll stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me. So Habakkuk sort of sets himself up as this, as this lookout. And a lookout's job is to watch and wait and see what's coming. He's not going to intervene. He's not going to interfere with what's happening. He's not even going to go around and, and warn anybody. That's Jeremiah's job. Other, other prophets are going to do that. But Habakkuk's job is just to watch what's going on. And write it down. And I can't imagine the burden that he's carrying. I can't imagine what it's like to know that my people are about to be wiped out and taken, out, taken away into exile. You know, the holy city destroyed... Uh, the end of our traditions, and there's nothing that I can do about it. And I'm, I'm not to, to warn anybody about it. And, and so I think Habakkuk finds himself with this heavy burden that he didn't ask for as the prophet. He doesn't know why, but God has chosen him, and he just has this job to do. And so that's a burden that Habakkuk carries, as being the prophet. Another is this. Um, the, the, he's burdened over God's enemies. And I think it's really important to be clear that um, God isn't indifferent toward evil in the book of Habakkuk, all right? Like, God is going to judge. There will be justice. And in chapter 2, God responds to Habakkuk after Habakkuk offers this, you know, this prayer and kind of expressing, like, God, it's just, this is just too much. How can you, what are you waiting for? And God responds in chapter 2 with a series of five woes. Now, these don't happen a lot in Scripture, but when, when God shares a woe, that's a really serious thing. It's like, like, like uh, you know, you do not want to be in this place. You do, this is, you do not want to be this person who is being told woe to you. And, and Habakkuk is going to pronounce these five woes. Uh, you know, woe to you for your greed. Like, woe to you for your oppression, your idolatry. Woe to you for your violence. And the idea here is like, Judgment is coming. God is going to make things right. There will be justice. You do not want to be God's enemy. And that's a burden that Habakkuk carries. In chapter 3, he gives a bit of a picture of God's judgment. He says that plagues go before him. Pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. And it's like, that's what's coming for God's enemies. 
That's what's coming. And, and Habakkuk sees that, he knows it, and he can't keep that inside. That's too great a burden for Habakkuk to, to carry. So he's got to get it out. He's got to share it. Another burden he's, that he's got to share is his burden for God's people. The book of Habakkuk, it's not all judgment and woes. There's hope and there's blessing and, and there's promise in here too. Because after judgment, there will be salvation and there will be flourishing and there will be God's, God's shalom will come. In chapter 2, there's this beautiful promise. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that beautiful? Jumping down to chapter 3, Habakkuk, he has this burden of trust and faith in God. We heard it read earlier. He says, there may not be a fig on the tree. There may not be any fruit on the vine. Maybe there's not a single olive growing right now. Maybe all of the, all of the crops have failed and, there's, and all of the livestock are gone. But we will rejoice again. We will celebrate God again. That's beautiful. Before that, there's this beautiful promise of grace, uh, which is picked up a lot in the New Testament. The righteous one will live by his faith. Other versions, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. We'll talk about that. But again, this burden that he has for God's people, it's just too much for him to keep in. He's got to share it. And the last burden I think that Habakkuk wants to unload, he wants to share with us, is his burden about God's own heart. God's heart. Now, as we go on in this study of Habakkuk, we're going to see really clearly that just because God doesn't behave the ways that we think he should, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Like, God isn't, he's not aloof. He's not, like, distant from us. He's not uninterested in what happens in our lives. In chapter 1, verse 5, Habakkuk's going to say, or he's going to quote God and say, I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. A little bit later, in the same section where God's announcing this judgment that's coming on his enemies, he's going to get really specific about why that judgment is coming. Really specific about it. It's because there's violence. It's because there's greed. There is, there is genocide. He's, God is reacting to how on earth the powerful are exploiting the poor. And, and there's these very uh, human, very earthy, very systemic problems that God is, is really upset about in chapter 2. There's like corrupt economics and, and business practices. And there's poverty and addictions. And there's idolatry. And in some ways, as we read this, it sort of feels like Habakkuk could have been written, you know, against his people in 2021. And the the point here is God is paying attention. He sees, he cares, and it ends up, we, we have to realize that God is burdened by what burdens us. Let me say that again. God is burdened by what burdens us. And I think it's really important to, to look at the picture that Habakkuk paints of, of, of uh, the, these burdens because everybody who tries to live for God is going to carry these same burdens at some times. You, you may have experienced that already. We're going to look at what's going on in our lives and we're going to be like, God, how long do I have to... How long do I have to suffer like this? How long will I bring this to you? How long will I pray like this and you aren't listening? What are you waiting for? I, I know that some of us here have, have prayed like that. And, and if you haven't, you, you will. 
Some of us, we, we sometimes wonder, like, God, why me? Why have you chosen me for this thing? Why not somebody else? Sometimes we look at the example of, of other people who don't trust God, who lie and cheat and steal, and uh, they take shortcuts, and we're tempted to follow their example. And we need to hear, like, no, no, no. Woe on that. There will be justice. That is not a better way. That's not what I want for you. And, and, and so we need to hear God's burden for us. We need to hear God will keep his promises. We need to hear that God hasn't forgotten his people. We need to hear that God loves his people. Even at times, it may not feel like it. God actually loves us. Now, I'd like to show you something here. I, just, I think this is going to help us appreciate what Habakkuk is trying to do. Okay? This is a painting called White Crucifixion by an artist named Mark Chagall. He, he uh, painted it in 1938. How many people have seen this painting before? How many people, before I posted it on our Facebook page last night, have seen this, this painting before? Okay. A couple. So if you don't know who Mark Chagall is, that's, that's totally okay. Uh, you probably have heard of, a, of a, an artist named Pablo Picasso. Pablo Picasso said that uh, Chagall is the only artist alive who understands what color is. The, the current Pope, Pope Francis... He looks at this painting, and of all of the paintings that, he, that the Pope has ever seen of the crucifixion of Jesus, which I think is a lot, of all of them, this is his favorite. This is the one that impacts him the most. And, and if you're not kind of an artsy person, if you're not an art lover, I totally, that's totally okay. But I want to take a minute and just notice some things about this painting, okay? I just want to see if we can get a sense of what this artist's burden is. Now, as you look at this painting of the crucifixion, how many of you, you, you look at it and you see what's going on in the, in the different parts of the painting and you're like, how many of you would agree the artist's goal is, the artist's burden is not to give a, like a photographic, realistic uh, portrayal of what happened at the crucifixion. Would you agree that that's fair? Can, I'd love to just hear from you for a minute. Maybe just pop up your hand and... And I would love to hear what you notice is going on in this painting, okay? Would you just share with us something that you notice that helps you to think he's probably not trying to give us like a realistic historical account of what the crucifixion looked like? What do you see? What do you notice uh, in this painting? Yeah? So, this is my dad, by the way. Um, so, rather than, uh, rather than like him ascending and going up and the crucifixion being this, this uh, really kind of positive thing up at the top, it's down at the bottom and there's all this chaos and mess around it. Okay, cool. And, and you mentioned some fires. That's really interesting. So, there's some, a fire going on over here. And as far as we know, in the, biblical, in the gospel accounts, there's, no, there's not like a fire at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah, B.A., were you going to say something? Because the land 
Yeah, absolutely. So B.A. is saying there's some, some ways that the artist has, has moved the, the perspective around in order to achieve something, right? There's like, there's this vote, which you'd think if, he's, if he wants to show a vote, it probably should be in the background. Or if there's these people up at the top, they should be in the background. This thing is, up, is at the bottom here, this, this menorah, and it's, it's, uh, there's no record of this being in the, in the crucifixion story. Thank you. Yeah, great. Uh, are there some other things you notice about this? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Excellent, thank you. So Ronnie's just observed that, like, there's some people wearing boots here and kind of wearing hats, and, like, it's not like the artist is trying to capture one moment in history. He seems to be tying a couple of different things together. Did anybody else want to toss something out here before we go on? If you do, it's totally great. Great. What do you, anything else that you notice about this? Maybe just raises some questions for you about what's going on. Yeah, Ro, uh, Rolf. Okay. So maybe that's a ray of light to show like there's there's some darkness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let me just, let's just take a minute and, and just talk about some of these things that we notice. So I'm just going to zoom in for a minute. And in a lot of normal crucifixion paintings, you see angels floating around at the top. And, and in, in a lot of art, medieval art, Renaissance art, the angel's job in the, in the painting is to encourage Jesus and say, like, it's almost over. You can do this. Except in, in Chagall's painting, it's not angels floating around at the top. It's the elders and the tradition keepers and the wisdom keepers of Israel. And down here on the left, over here on the left, we notice that there's this boat. Well, that's a boat of refugees. And over here on the, at the top on the left, you've got this group of people carrying, you know, spears and swords and stuff. And they've got these red flags. And Marc Chagall grew up in a time in, uh, in, in uh, not sure if it was Russia, but in a time when the Soviets were sweeping, out, sweeping the Jews out of the land. And there were all these what's called pogroms where they would burn a village and, and, um, and kick the Jews out of the land. So that's what's going on here uh, in, on the left. And then on the right, instead of the Soviets doing that, now you've got Germans and they are burning a synagogue. And they are, you know, opening up the, the, the sacred place where the Torah scrolls are being held. And they're just torching a synagogue. And down at the bottom... At the bottom of the cross, you've got this menorah, and instead of seven lit candles, you've got six. One of them's burnt out, and a seventh is missing. You've got a guy over here who's running away, and he's carrying a rolled-up Torah scroll from the synagogue, trying to escape. You've got a guy over here carrying a sign around his neck saying, I'm, I'm a Jew. Uh, you've got a, a guy fleeing over here. You've got a burning uh, Torah. You've got a woman who's carrying her child. She's trying to escape. And at the center of it all, you've got this very Jewish-looking Jesus who, instead of wearing a normal loincloth, he's got a prayer shawl, a Jewish prayer shawl. And instead of a crown of thorns at the top, he's, got, he's wearing a, a head covering. 
And instead of here at the top, where you normally would expect to see the the Latin letters I-N-R-I, you've got a Hebrew inscription at the top. And uh, and, and if you're not an art lover, if you're not a a really particularly artsy person, that's totally okay. But what we have now is enough to kind of go like, what is the artist's burden? What's his burden? What brings him to, to show the crucifixion this way? Well, it might help you to understand, if you don't already, Mark Chagall was a Jew who lived uh, at, the, at the time that the, Jew, that the Nazis were rising in power. And in 1938, he painted this painting in Paris uh, at a time when, when, um, when Jews are beginning to, when Jews are being persecuted. But this is, these are the early days of the Holocaust. Jews are already being persecuted all through Europe. And in a, in a very short time, they're going to be rounded up and they're going to be put in concentration camps in the East where they're going to work and suffer and starve and die. And ultimately, more than 6 million Jews will die this way in the Holocaust. And Marc Chagall was almost one of them, except that the art community in Paris got together and they grabbed him and they rescued him and brought him to America. And Marc Chagall lost family and friends and neighbors in the Holocaust. He is like, he should have been one of them. And he wrestles with intense survivor's guilt for the rest of his life. And all that Mark Chagall can imagine as he's living his life in, in America is that his, 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 his people are in these concentration camps and they're calling out, God, how long? What are you waiting for? Don't you see what's going on? Can't you, can't you, can't you hear our cries? What are you waiting for before you rise up and, and send your rescuer and help us? How can this be part of your plan? And the one thing that helped Chagall carry this burden was his concept of a very Jewish Jesus hanging on a cross out of love for his Jewish people, his fellow Jews, identifying as a Jew, dying as a Jew. And Mark Chagall saw that the same uh, evil and corruption and cowardice that was at the root of the Holocaust is the very same evil and corruption and cowardice that put Jesus on the cross. They're the same. And for Mark Chagall, that helped him make make sense of that. That gave him some some hope in the midst of this, that he and his Lord share the same burden. That didn't fix it. But there was some comfort in a shared burden. And, you know, I hope you know, if Mark Chagall wanted, if he wanted to, to paint a realistic painting of the crucifixion, he could have done that. And if he wanted to give us a realistic sort of, you know, Report, visual report of what the Holocaust looked like, he could have done that. And if, if Habakkuk wanted to give us a factual, you know, comprehensive record of all of the problems that he saw in Judah during his time, he could very easily have written that. But that's not his point. That's not his point. Sometimes we need the truth to hit us like a painting and not a photo. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. That's what he's doing. Now, I don't know what burdens you've got as you come in uh, today. I don't know what burdens you're carrying. I know that you've got some. You might be burdened for a a loved one 
who is like making all kinds of bad choices. You might be burdened for your family or for your spouse or for your kids. You might be burdened for your work. You might be burdened for your, your finances and, or your, your, your future. You might be like, God, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I can't imagine that, that my life is going to continue on like this. And so you're in this place maybe where you're, you're calling out in the midst of your burdens. You're like, God, are you listening? God, are you paying attention? How long will this continue, God? How could this be part of your plan? And I hope you know, through this study of Habakkuk, that it's okay to pray that way. Maybe you've never felt like you're allowed to. Maybe you're not sure that you can actually pray to God that way. You actually can. It's actually okay. Because here, we, the fact that we have this ancient like artist prophet who unloads his burdens, and that's in the Bible, that has to mean that God invites us to share our burdens with him. It has to mean that God invites us and he welcomes us to be completely honest to God. It has to mean that. And I think as we do, as we go through this, go on this journey over the next few weeks, I think we're going to find as we share our burdens with God, we're actually going to find that God has some burdens uh, of his own to share with us. Imagine that. Again, it doesn't fix our problems. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't make the problem go away. But there is tremendous comfort. and There's tremendous hope in a shared burden. And I think that that's what we need to see. So let's pray for that. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.